This episode was recorded prior to the tour news on Monday. If you are looking for tour news and discussion on tour news, go to our feed on wherever you subscribe to this podcast on Apple or Spotify, and you'll see the episode right before this one is our tour reaction episode. But for now, enjoy this one. If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at liveonfourlegspod. I would believe all this, this, uh, I would think that all this little, this applause was legitimate if I didn't hear them having practice beforehand. You see, now I don't trust you at all. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs the definitive live pearl jam podcast we're gonna get right into this one today no tee-ups because this is mtv unplugged march 16th if you're listening to this on the day of this is the 30th anniversary of one of the most important shows that they have ever played and if that's not enough of a tease well listen to what else we got randy sobel over here john farrar over there hello hello yeah, you, if you really want to be hardcore, you can listen to it at midnight when they recorded it. Right, right, yeah. But... real, like, experience. So, as we've been telling for the last three weeks, we've been talking about the story of basically Pearl Jam developing into the band that we kind of know of today and that we really got to know in 1992. A lot of those Holland shows that we talked about, you can tell that the band is interacting with the crowd. You can tell that the band is seeing the reaction from the crowd and they're kind of getting a high from it. And this is what it's going to be from this point forward. So the story here is that they did the Zurich show. Now, if you remember PJ 20, the Zurich show was the show where it was only like 50 or 100 people in there. And the stage, they said, it was no bigger than their drum riser. So they were kind of cramped. And they decided, all right, let's rent some acoustic instruments. Let's get out there and let's just do an acoustic performance. And that's where that came from. And literally, the day after, they get a call from an executive at MTV that's asking them, would you guys want to do this? Not only that, but doing stuff acoustically is not exactly 
foreign to them even before the Zurich show because they did all those tower record right. in-store performances. Right. Yonkers, Rockville, Maryland, and Paris, among a couple others. But yeah. let's get to the Jeff quote from the PJ20 book. And let's talk about what he said in reference to when they found out and what they thought about it. Yeah, you know, so much of this is about timing. And, and here, if you, everyone will turn to page 80. Jeff says, we were like, we just did it. Had they called a week before, we wouldn't have known if we could have pulled it off. But in Zurich, it seemed like it was all right musically. We had very little experience as an acoustic band at that point, like you mentioned. So part of us wished we could do it over. Nirvana did theirs a couple years later and obviously spent some time on it. We literally got off the plane from Europe, spent all day in a cavernous sound studio in New York, and did the show that night. It was just kind of what it was. It's pretty powerful and Ed's singing great, yet it's kind of naive, which is kind of awesome. End quote. So who knows if that MTV person calls two days earlier, maybe they turn it down and maybe say, eh, no, that's not really us. Like, and this never happens. Yeah, I can honestly see that happening, but he's right. Jeff's writing the quote. A lot of what's happened to Pearl Jam has been very, very good timing. And that is probably the moment where you can say that exemplifies that. Yeah, you know, I put that Zerk show on my list of vaults that I would like to see. You know, that's like a legendary performance, like getting to see some video of it in PJ20 was just insane. And like, supposedly there's like just a jam session at the end of that thing. They just stopped playing songs and just jam like acoustically. So yeah, that just kind of gave them the confidence. And then to get this call the day after to be like, eh, sure, give it a shot. And then like not knowing that it would become this like iconic career changing performance. The feature that you're referencing is actually up on liveonfourlegs.com. And yep. what it is, is we kind of took us and the hallucinogenic recipe guys that we're going to hear from in a little bit. And we picked five shows that we think should be vaults in the future. We all had really good picks and we all had a lot of different picks. And we've asked a lot of people what their picks would be. And we've gotten some very interesting results. So definitely check that out if that's a topic that you really enjoy. A lot of people love the collecting aspects. So, but this one is already on vinyl. I don't think they would make another one. It would be <laughs> kind of a money grab just to add Rocket in the Free World. But so we kind of mentioned there. So this was really the band did the Munich, Germany show on the 13th of March. And for a lot of people that know this, that was the night where they played the full album 10 front to back. Yep. So it was kind of like a goodbye moment for the European tour. And it stood for a very, very long time as being the only show that ever had an album played in full. And obviously that has very much changed since then, but it shows how good they were feeling on that tour and how good they were feeling about things and how it didn't really matter what kind of success they were having because people were reacting to it. So now after all that, and after feeling really good and all those Holland shows and even a little bit of turbulence in the UK, but they, now they're coming back home. I'm sure they're getting calls, but they don't really know what's happening with the alive video. They don't really know what's happening yet with even flow starting to circulate on the radio. So they're going back and Tenet actually reached the top 20 on the Billboard charts by the time they came back, which shocked me. I thought that that would be a little later. Yeah, we talk about that kind of slow ascent. It was starting to get there at this point. I think the Alive video was out, so and that was yes. getting heavy rotation. So we're going to talk about MTV. We're talking about Unplugged. So it had a huge impact on sales of everything at the time. Like if you got your video in rotation, 
people were going to see it and they were going to go buy the record. Like there's a direct correlation there. So yeah, that MTV was a big help in the, and especially being live. Like every time it came on, I remember, you know, I didn't have MTV at home, but at school on my lunch break, I would go down and they had a kind of a little lounge area that had a TV and we would watch MTV on like lunch break. And I would just hope like every day to hear like, please play something from Pearl Jam. I mean, you probably got your wish on most days because oh, yeah. especially oh, yeah. that year, like everything was circulating. And yeah. I don't think that the Even Flow video was out by the time that not. they had recorded yeah, this, so. but yeah. very shortly after it was in a lot of circulation. So, <laughs> all right. So the next kind of storyline in this, obviously it's a rush to get out there. And when they're leaving Europe, of course, the band takes their commercial flight and then they have to send the cargo with all their gear on another flight so their gear had not arrived to the states yet it was still a couple days away so what they had to do was with very little prep time the band was forced to rent their equipment and that's pretty crazy you know yeah, from a show yeah. like this and having it be so specific that you really need specific acoustics to, to work with because they don't do this very often so especially stone which i'm going to get into in a second they know what they're comfortable with and what they were offered isn't necessarily what they're comfortable with playing at the zerk show or in stores before that so it seemed a bit turbulent and it seemed like the band didn't exactly get what they wanted but it's interesting in that facet that even with this whole fiasco kind of going on they still pulled out what they pulled out. So I'm going to read a, a quote from Stone right here. We showed up, and instead of the Gibson Chet Atkins steel string guitar I had ordered, they had a classical one there. It was getting late, like 11 o'clock at night. Remember, this was filmed at yeah. midnight that night. And to remember, in classical guitars, to have, I think, nylon strings, not... Yep. Metal right, so strings, so completely very different. different sound. Yeah. Right, it's definitely not something that Stone should be using. Mike... And maybe a really special scenario, but no, it's not even for that either. Yeah. And where can you rent stuff at that hour? Luckily, we knew some people who were able to score us a couple more guitars, and it turned out fine. I ended up getting the Chet Atkin steel string, which played great, and a Takamine, and that felt pretty good. In those situations, you just kind of have to play with the hand that you're dealt. I think especially coming off of all that, like... If they had a week to kind of prepare for this, then they would have been able to get what they wanted to. But boy, that scramble in that 72 hours to be on that long flight and then get to practicing in the studio and then scrambling to get all the equipment in, like, that's just... Oh, yeah, you know, the management and, like, all the crew was just on call 24-7, like, trying to make this thing happen, yeah. Now, you have a quote from Mike McCready kind of about his perspective on where the whole equipment thing lied. Yeah, Mike says, it came out all right, but it could have been a nightmare because we ordered some specific equipment, just like Stone said, and they gave us pretty shitty stuff. I wanted to get a Martin, which is like the gold standard of acoustic guitars. He says, some nice guitars, but when you rent equipment, you don't know what you're getting. Jeff ordered some specific basses and they didn't appear. The acoustic guitar I played had really high action, so it was totally impossible to do leads, but I thought it came out pretty well anyhow. 
and that's Mike that told Guitar World in 1992, but we yeah. found it still on Five Horizons' website, which is fantastic. So yeah, like everybody kind of had their own struggles with the whole thing, and and when you're on tour for all yeah. that time, and they'd really been on tour what for at least four or five months straight, going yeah, back to when Chili Pepper started. That's right. And we had found out too, I think, this just came out, I think, earlier this year, last year, Dave A on social media let it slip that he was sick at this point. Like, he, right. he played this thing under, under the weather. So, yeah, just amazing. Again, goes into the story and how the mystique of this show that even you're listening to it happen, like, nothing was perfect leading up to this at all. Like, you would think that kind of came out and, and you think, oh, they practiced all this and they knew what they were doing. And it's exactly the opposite almost. So again, that's what makes it magical. That's what kind of adds to the legend of it. Now, a lot of the band members were excited. It seemed like Jeff was pretty excited, but others were a little hesitant. On that side was McCready. So we have another quote. Why don't you read the quote from Mike? Yeah, he says, I don't think anybody else was of this mindset, but I didn't really want to do it. I didn't think we were as good acoustically as we were electric, he explains. That's how I was thinking back then. I felt like we were just honing that thing down. And being a lead player, playing leads on acoustic for me was really fucking hard. It just didn't feel like the right thing to do at the time. But, you know, Ed rose to the challenge, and we all did again. Everybody else I talked to seems to like it a lot, so I guess I was wrong. He adds to that back in the PJ20 book. He says... I was like, we're a rock band. We play loud. I was fighting it, trying to make it sound heavier than it really was. I love acoustic now, but back then I was more, let's bring the power of this band. Yeah, I, I can see that, especially from Mike, who just plays loud. Uh, of course, Stone plays so much differently, and he's so much more melodical that, yeah, he can play acoustic, and it can be an easy transfer over, but Mike is, is the exact opposite. Like, how is that going to work? Solo guitar doesn't really translate that well, or at least in some situations it doesn't, but for as much as he didn't want to do it, he really made it work, and he was a standout from this. Yeah, it's you know, he's so good at, like, coaxing kind of that there's you know you can't do feedback on acoustic guitar you can't like do that that crazy stuff with the pedals and everything that he does like bending notes and all this stuff that you can get and make cool these crazy sounds like you pretty much just have to play it straight on on acoustic guitar and yeah i can see like going back he says you know if you can get a martin then yeah like those things sound amazing like they're beautiful guitars they're amazing to play but if you're playing shitty equipment then yeah it must have been frustrating for him yeah, and he kind of says, too, some of the songs turned out good acoustically, and then some didn't quite work in that facet. And we're we'll going to that. obviously yeah. talk about a lot of them, but Mike didn't think that even flow was any good. So once we get to even flow in the set, we'll kind of break that down and, and talk about that a little bit. But I want to get to some of Stone's thoughts right here, too, about the whole what was going on and, and what was in his mind and, and I guess thinking about it in hindsight. An acoustic show is really sort of naked, exposed way of playing your songs because you can't hide behind distortion. Doing it in front of millions of people is even more intimidating. We actually went out there and had a fun, energized show. It's a cool way to hear the band because the drums and the vocals are featured a lot more. Dave, our drummer, is a great player, and Eddie can really shine when he's given the room to move around vocally. It gave people different perception of the band. Yeah, like, I think that's a great way to look at it, because, again, really, even at the time, all that most people that didn't buy 10, 
all that they knew of them was that, okay, they were the band that had the stage diving music videos, you know, that had the raucous crowd music videos. So at the very least, the people that knew that saw those were kind of like, okay, Pearl Jam is probably best as an electric band. And then they come out with this. And like you said, the perception really changed. And I think even from that point forward, they became confident enough to do it where when bridge school opportunities came up, they did it. When the next record came up, you have songs like Elderly Woman that were starting to really succeed on that record. So I think that this is as much of an important moment. I think it's a turning point for them musically as well. Yes. And I bet even I think there's a quote from Ed at the very end of this that even like hints at a little bit of insecurity about like, you know, they record this, there's probably a couple hundred people there, some MTV people there. So they don't really know what the response is going to be. And this thing doesn't air for a couple months. So it's not like you can get an immediate reaction to it. So there's a quote from Ed at the very end where he comes out. I think it's even after Rockin' the Free World, right before the recording turns off, he says, oh, you know, Kurt Cobain said we were poisoned. We're not, we're not poisoned, right? So it's kind of like, can we do this? Because Unplugged before this, a lot of those bands had done it. Like your kind of 80s bands and stuff like that. It, this was one of the first ones that was like, here's a young up-and-coming band doing this. It was kind of more the bridge school set to be honest, you know, that that was doing these. So, yeah, there's something to that where they weren't really sure. But then you go back and, you know, these performances, as soon as it hit, everyone was just like, oh, that guy's like, we've talked a lot about Stone and Mike, but this is all about Ed. He becomes a superstar at this point, like just an incredible performance. Absolutely. And I think they were filming a couple of unplugs that night. And even the artists that went after him, I think Boys to Men was definitely one of them. And I'm not sure who the second one was. I thought I heard Mariah Carey, but that seems a little bit too early for her. It also could have been Whitney Houston, but I don't know if she had one. So, but it was definitely more of an R&B pop artist that that yeah. that was there so yeah. again they're they're not you're right they're not thinking along the terms of a pearl jam type band and, and again at the, the other time you hadn't had nirvana or allison chains do it yet but you had more your eric clapton's and that sort yeah. of thing like people yeah. that you knew that could play acoustic and sounded good on acoustic were kind of in their wheelhouse there. I want to read one more quote from stone because i think that this again comes from his perspective and it's very interesting I remember being nervous, but we had also played a lot, so we were pretty comfortable with our songs. I think we were still at a phase where we were. I lost confidence a little bit because for a few years where I was, I just wasn't sure whether we were deserving all this stuff. I remember that we felt it was pretty good, but we had played very little acoustically. We relied on a lot of the noise and the wildness to our shows to generate energy. And yeah, you don't get all that. Even in between songs, it's very much like, okay, just sitting around. There's a lot of waiting for commercial breaks in this if you're watching the uncut version, which does actually have some cuts that we'll get to in a little bit. But yeah, it gets quiet and it's almost uncomfortable. Like sometimes Mike has to sort of noodle a little bit or Stone sort of noodles a little bit to sort of fill that dead air. But usually during this, they're getting crowds that are screaming at them, begging for songs, or Ed is just fired up and he's talking and communicating with them. And and that doesn't happen here. It's just a different atmosphere. Yeah, the applause thing is funny, too, because like he, he'll mention that. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, coming on get it. to this. Like, yeah, 
it turns out, you know, he was built for these intimate settings, you know. He almost treats it like playing at a small club. It's not like he says it didn't feel like TV. He's going in there treating it like they're playing one of those small European clubs that they had been doing, you know, the previous month. Some of the ones that we talked about the last few weeks. Yeah, I don't think Ed gave himself enough credit for the artist that he was. I think that he was prepared for all this. But again, going from bad radio to Pearl Jam is a huge leap forward. Even just touring, even just the touring wise, because I'm not sure that bad radio really left California. Oh, no, no, definitely not. They kind of stayed in San Diego. So I think those were his insecurities about it. But he was made for it. And clearly Stone and Jeff thought he was made for it. And I think he was just so natural about it, but he just didn't quite know just yet. And in the coming years, probably out of the 90s, probably more starting in about 2003, 2004-ish, Ed would be able to take over that stage and be able to be comfortable being himself. And that's when everything sort of comes together and and the performances especially on live tv feel like you're connected in in some way with the band so real quick we're going to toss the hallucinogenic recipe in a second but the studio they were performing in was in astoria in queens and the studio name is kaufman astoria studios it's a legendary film studio movies like goodfellas and the whiz were shot there as well as sesame street i got i got a note about that that was going to be my trivia question. I was going to say, do you know what the studio is, is most known for? And yeah, it's being the studio where they filmed Sesame Street for 50 years. I didn't even realize that. I've been there before because, oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what I was there for. It had to have been when I was an intern because for just kind of maneuvering in and out the city, like that really wasn't a thing that I did if it wasn't for work. But I sort of remember like being in there and there was a huge prop bin it was locked but i kind of tried to peek in under it so if i could see any like puppets or anything like that but i had no knowledge of that at the time that that was where unplugged was filmed and had i known it i would have geeked out a little bit more but yeah yeah, so that's where all that happened all right now we're going to toss to our guys from hallucinogenic recipe they're going to talk a little bit about the collecting aspect of this and the recording aspect and having it on vhs and also how the cd and some of the imports that were happening were all sort of different and it kind of evolved within time so i'm going to kick it over to brian and patrick and let them do their thing this is patrick i'm here with brian from hallucinogenic recipe and we're going to do a quick short take on mtv unplugged brian what do you remember about the early days of this release so i still have my vhs tape from the first time they ever aired it in early may what was it the the 13th i want to say was the first time they showed it yep i had already started becoming a fan by that point i think i had a couple of the singles in addition to 10 you know, some of the videos were already out by that point, Alive and Even Flow. I remember just watching it and, you know, Black was amazing and State of Love and Trust was amazing. And then, as I always say, if anyone ever says, like, was there a moment when you kind of went like all in with that band? Like, when did you know that band was going to be like, kind of like a long term thing? I think the exact moment is the jam in Porch when he writes Pro-Choice on his arm. And then as it crescendos back into the final chorus, 
that's just etched in my brain. And we were just talking about it. I, I've seen it hundreds of times and I still get kind of caught up in it. I remember watching that for the very first time and just going, yeah, this is my band. I'm all in right now. Which bootleg compilation did you have unplugged on? So I had, when I finally got an audio copy of Unplugged, it was on a bootleg called Versus the World. The transfer, you can clearly tell someone tried to do an audio transfer, I think probably from a VHS tape. It, it's not the, the greatest quality, but it was good enough and it was great to have to be able to listen to and not just have to keep you know rewinding the video, which by this point I'm sure is, is nearly falling apart. <laughs> Yeah, I had a, a weird version of Unplugged for a CD. It was the black and white. I actually was thinking about this the other day. I had always thought it was on Kiss the Stone, but it was not on the Kiss the Stone label. It was on a, a label called Nico Records. Mm. Um, it was actually their very first release. It was 001 in their catalog. And it oddly, you know, with Unplugged in and of itself, the airing of it not actually being the linear way that the band played that night this one was even a little bit weirder the track list was like completely flipped around and i don't know if to your point how that when you think about a vhs being used as the go-to it must have also probably got you know pulled and flipped around on a sides and b sides of a tape or something because it starts with jeremy goes to even flow then state of love and trust then alive then porch then black and there's all just cuts in between it it was decent sound quality to be sure but it was nothing spectacular i eventually passed that along because it just as time went on things emerged and one of the big things that emerged was the completely uncut unedited version in correct playing order as well and i got that in the year 2000 on the binaural tour i was out at a record store in long island called looney tunes and picked up a true bootleg in the sense that because it was on a cdr and it was just called unplugged uncut uncensored and it kind of introed everything into it you know the the notion that oceans and rocking in the free world were on the set list that was known at that point in time due to five horizons but this was the first time i actually got to hear it got to hear everything in order got to hear all the little details of what was happening because they were filming a tv show so you get all of the, like the in-between chatter when they're going to breaks and and whatnot so that was just absolutely incredible and then you've had a few years after the surfacing of the complete complete recording when the sound check came out as well which is kind of interesting it's always cool to have that insight into what was going on and then just noodling around what they were going to play. Certainly nothing groundbreaking or, or shocking that necessarily occurred in Soundcheck, but still nonetheless to have that was just a unique sort of view into what was going on in the setup for the show. But to your point earlier about Porch, I think one of the things that always stuck with me from Unplugged, definitely Porch, but State of Love and Trust was the, yeah. the thing that jumped out. It was a little bit new to me when it aired, obviously. And just over the years, that was one of the tracks that I always just gravitate to, just to hear them attack and play that song in an acoustic setting was kind of remarkable. Yeah, I love that version of State of Love and Trust. I love how kind of towards the end, when, when Eddie screams, help me from myself, I love the little lick that Mike plays there, that little solo there, which sounds really good in acoustic. It, it's a That's one of those songs that you wouldn't think would really work in that sort of setting. And it definitely does. I, I agree. I think after Porch, I, to me, it's either State of Love and Trust or Black. I mean, I know everyone kind of puts those Black in kind of the, the upper tier. You can't miss with either of those three songs, Porch, State of Love and Trust or Black. They're just magnificent. Absolutely. 
Well, there's no shortage of bootleg versions of this. It's still getting bootlegged today on vinyl, no less, even though it's been released already officially on vinyl. <laughs> But there's just, I think, probably three dozen versions of this show in some capacity out there. Obviously, there's no way to overstate how incredible and how important this was to the history of the band. So just an amazing time. Incredible that it's been 30 years. It was right as the band was really starting to take off. And I think that combined with several months later, the Jeremy video just just was the perfect storm for those guys. One thing really quick that I think is really cool is just like a, a time capsule element of this. The VHS tape that I have, I, I haven't watched it in, in so long now that I've had, you know, digital copies over the years and, and YouTube and whatever. But I know on there somewhere in a commercial break is a short interview with the Beastie Boys talking about their then new album, Check Your Head, which had come out in late April. So I remember there's a video clip of them talking about recording it, how it was like different for the band, whatever. And it totally puts it like a, like I said, like a little time capsule element to the recording that I have. It's pretty cool. Incredible. Oh, I have to add one minor note to the black and white recording, which is just truly remarkable. We've talked about in the past the names of songs. Well, they had State of Love listed for State of Love and Trust, which is like, okay, you're getting close there. But there's an electric version on the back end of it called Steel Lie and Trust. Steel Lie and Trust, yep. And it's the same freaking song. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we talking about that recently? I, there was a bootleg I have that has whipping and don't need. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's all over just the place. Pick, just pick one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, good stuff. We'll hear what Randy and John are going to have to say about this as well. And we'll get back together soon to do a full length and enjoy that. Steal, lie, and trust. When I heard them say that for the first time, I had never heard that. Uh, Your lie and trust is. <laughs> that sounds like what it. What it sounds like is sounds like a mafia's slogan Rito, or something like, like yeah, that. Like, I'll put that on a crest for the for the mob or something. Right, like, like hey, we steal and we lie, but you got trust me, man. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that was all great stuff. And obviously their perspective is amazing. If you want to follow them on Twitter, they're at Elusive Recipe. If you want to email them, hallucinogenicrecipe at gmail.com. So they're going to be doing more stuff for us very, very soon. All right. Now we kind of get into the the pre-show and sort of some of the things that happen. I want to talk about the sound check a little bit. I want to talk about the rearranged set list that was different for the TV version because we're going in actual recording order here. We're not we have to, yeah, yeah, right. The order that makes sense the most, and we'll also real quick talk about the Redux DVD release and the vinyl release from 2019. So let's start with the the sound check real quick. I think you kind of dug into it a little bit more than me, but from what I got out of it, it seemed like State of Love and Trust and Alive. Ed wasn't quite going for it with his vocals. He was holding back a little bit, but he was having that sarcastic sort of tone when he was singing those. So that was interesting. This is the same day on the sound check. So they're probably sound checking in the afternoon and then they're going to come back at midnight and play the show. So he doesn't want to go full throatedly, let it all go probably a few hours before the performance because you don't want to throw your voice out, especially being on tour and then being on a plane and like, it's a rough situation for his voice. And we talked about it too. They were playing almost every night for a month. 
There's a moment in Oceans 2 where he goes to hit the the last note and can't do it. He's like, his voice cracks a little bit and he, he it breaks a little bit. So I think after that, he kind of like, okay, I need to relax this and calm it down a little bit. Sure. There's a moment in the live where he uses a phrase. We've heard some of the misogyny in, uh, I, in Alive. I do remember this. Yes, yeah. And yep. in some it. of the early 90s stuff. And he says, in Alive, you know, we've heard him say, you know, you fucking B-I-T-C-H and all this. And like... Here, he goes, you fucking C-U-N-T, which is a word that we never hear him say. But in this sound check, that's what he says. And then the very next line, he goes, oh, I can I can say that. It's like, hmm, okay. We talked in the last couple yeah. episodes about yeah. how like they were still pretty young at this time and still kind of mentally immature, Again, even though they kind of... like. I'm not going to excuse this dude. Like you can't be. Oh, I'm not either. But in the nineties, they were doing like the nineties were still pretty woke. This kind of is is a little bit, a little bit much. Again, there's a sound check. He knows that no one's going to hear this. Probably. He doesn't know that someone's recording it. We're going to be talking about it 30 years later, but it gives you a kind of like, is he letting us in about like how he really feels about, the the person that the song is about or is it a little he's just saying things just to say it. yeah maybe maybe but yeah I'm not, I'm not gonna say like oh it was the 90s it was different like no it was it, people still knew it, it wasn't like you could you could get away with that obviously he's not gonna say that at a show and he hasn't but before jeremy he actually goes this one's for you jeremy which again never hear him say that you know the kid from Dallas who actually from the newspaper clip, I think it was in, I don't know if it was Dallas, but in Texas somewhere. That was kind of interesting too, to hear him kind of like go off and dedicate the song to that kid, which I don't see, think I've, I've never heard that before. See, I, I, I'm going to challenge that a little bit because we don't quite know if it was for Jeremy because it could have just been a cameraman or a yeah, crew uh, member. Uh, Name Jeremy because he could be like, "Oh, your name is Jeremy." So I'll uh, Mm -hmm. you you just don't know. We don't have it on video, so small percentage. Theoretically, you know, we don't have videos, so right. It's just kind of floated as a question mark either way. Do you want to talk about the rearranged set list? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you you know, people know if you're the eagle-eyed MTV viewers out there, you notice that there's a little problem with the jacket and the continuity, the continuity issue. So yeah, that people people latched onto that pretty early on. Is like, wait a minute, there's a little bit of the magic of TV editing going on here. What was the order of songs on TV? Because I can never remember this now because it is so out of order. I believe the aired version is. Even Flow, Jeremy, Alive, Black, State of Love and Trust, Porch. That's the right. order it was shown on MTV. The order that they actually played it, you can spoilers if you want to hold your ears, if you don't want to know what's coming up. <sighs> oh, I um, hope they know. <laughs> Oceans, State of Love and Trust, Alive, Black, Jeremy, Porch, Even Flow, Rockin' in the Free World. It's a shame that they left Oceans off of there. I don't know why yeah. that yeah, was. Just time just... constraints, probably. Either time constraint or they were just like, yeah, this isn't going to work with our MTV crowd, which is just really stupid. So well, MTV probably wanted to start with the single. Yeah, I could see yeah. that. 
I can yeah. see that. But again, continuity era because he had already yep. written pro choice on his arm. Because yep. you see it and he's he's got his jacket is off and the markers on his arm. You're probably yep. like, what the hell is that? And you have to yep. wait five songs until you actually see what happened. It's just all over the place. It wasn't a very good decision. But we can kind of get into a little bit of that as we continue on. Obviously, as as we mentioned a little bit before, the Redux had a DVD release of this. And that's when I really started to get familiar with the show because I had it in my hands like YouTube didn't quite have that stuff. And by the time that I was really sinking my teeth into everything Pearl Jam, it wasn't playing on MTV anymore. So you really needed to kind of have it secured in order to see it. And I, I'm sure I, in 1998, like 1996 through 1998, I, I'm sure I've seen bits and pieces of it. I always watched the best of unplugged shows. And I think like black and porch would be on there. And so I, I kind of remember stuff that happened, but again, it was really in, in 2009 when the redux came out that I didn't even know that it was coming with it. And, and I pop it open like shit. Okay. I'm going to go watch this now. And I probably wore out the DVD. So and obviously the vinyl release that was record store day on black friday a couple years ago which was a great release from them all right it's showtime the band walks through the crowd to get on the stage and they kind of tune up a little bit kind of like how the orchestra sort of tunes up i guess it's in their facet Mm -hmm. they were playing on that shitty equipment they had to make sure it sounded okay (laughs) (laughs) like make sure these work before we start that's not a lie yeah Ed addresses the crowd, says, we should take a second, look around, and see these friends and these people over here. He addresses another guy named Eddie, who was there with a couple friends, and then kind of pauses and says, oh, this is a TV show? We gotta start this now? Up goes the applause sign, and it's time for the night to begin. And it gets you to the first song in this set list, Oceans.
things you need for this specific song to sound good aren't exactly prone to an acoustic set because you need really good bass and you need really pounding drums on the song. And what happened? They made it all work and they made it all work beautifully. Jeff was a major highlight on this. I think this was the song that you really got to hear Jeff on the most because the guitars were a little bit opened up. And and Dave, too. Dave was really setting the tone and almost setting a platform for Ed to stretch his voice. And I think that they did it so perfectly in that mindset. But Dave, at the end, I think the ending is where it really starts to pick up because once it kind of goes into that last little chorus line he starts to get a little bit faster and that's exactly what would happen in the song and that kind of challenges mike and stone to to go a little bit faster too and it felt like a lot of times in the show dave was trying to challenge them and go a little bit faster and figure out how to play this more like pearl jam yeah trying to add a little bit more of their put their stamp on it and not just have it be like an Eric Clapton thing. I think, yeah, I think you're right, but this is all about Ed. We talked about that Den Hog version a few weeks ago, and I said that was the best oceans of all time. That's one A and this is one B like (laughs) just an incredible vocal performance. And to hear him, I think, you know, a couple of things we went back and we were looking at articles and looking at reviews and stuff. You're hearing him without the reverb that's on 10 and without fighting through a crowd on a bootleg, you're hearing his raw vocal up front. Like they hadn't done Saturday Night Live at this point. Like that wouldn't come until a, about a month later. Just the power of his voice on this just will send chills down your spine. And there's the O Beth stuff, which yeah, it's thrown in this, which maybe hasn't aged great, but it's and still was a not nice on cut. the vinyl version. Yeah, exactly. But it, his voice during that part is just like, how is that voice coming out of a human? It's just amazing. You just can't watch it and can't listen to it without just being transfixed by his voice. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm in full agreement of that. And it's pretty pure and pretty magical to all that. And he's, again, the foundation is being built for him to go off. And a lot of this show is going to be built for that. But boy, I think that everybody in this has a role that they play and and play it really, really well. The culmination of what the show is, is that it allowed Ed to become a superstar as just as much as Pearl Jam, but Ed's the face of the whole thing. Of course, he's the handsome guy. He's the guy that talks to the crowd. He's the guy that addresses everybody. He's the guy that's a little bit shy. He's the one that in the end is going to end up making Pearl Jam money. And it all begins with this. So after the song, Ed says, it was a little love song I wrote for my surfboard. Actually, it's someone named Beth. I wrote it for her, too. Now, this was more recent to me that that I, I knew about what he said here. And I've always thought that this was more of a love for the ocean type song and not like a romantic love sort of thing. I never saw both, it that way. Both. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think so, too. It's just a metaphor. Like, it's something that you, know, you can you can see it either way. And I think there was a lot of times where he was doing the Obeth around oh, yeah. this era. Yeah. And he was going yeah. for it that way. So, all right, we move on to State of Love and Trust. Not Steel, Lie, and Trust. Not State of Love, but State of Love and Trust is what we're getting right here.
boy, oh boy, is this a top-tier performance from this show. On the set list, on paper, I'm looking at it, I'm like, what is and what isn't going to transfer to Unplugged? And I, I, I obviously know the answer, but I'm trying to think as if I was brand new to this whole thing. And I say to myself, I'm like, you know what? State of Love and Trust would be really, really hard in any other situation. However, they somehow make this a top highlight of the night. <laughs> From Ed's snarl into the beginning. When like, Dave comes in, it just the drums just pop. Like, Oh, yeah. You yeah, hear every single... Every single tom, every single snare hit, like, yes, perfect. And then Mike's got almost shades of classical guitar where the solo is that sound really, really good, and it opens it up for him. Probably because it might have been a classical guitar. Right, yes, but... Yeah, very impressive considering what we know about the equipment now. Very, very impressive performance. Makes it that much more amazing that they were able to pull this off. And State of Love and Trust, outside of like, you know, I think most of these songs have evolution-wise pretty much stayed the same. Black got kind of different, even flow obviously changed a little bit. But State of Love and Trust is, is definitely one that didn't have a lot of change too much. It did change kind of in little pieces, but this is one of the only versions of the song that you listen to, and you're like, that is a completely stripped down deconstructed version of this and you never really get that from state of love and trust again yeah that's true like a lot of these other ones like there's maybe even flow and rock in the free will would be the only times they ever did it acoustically but a lot of these other ones we have other acoustic performances of them but this one is one of the ones that we don't this is just here and that's it Honestly, it's it's a highlight for me from this. I know I said it, but just hearing all the pieces kind of flow with it and especially what Mike is doing. And that's, again, he's, he talked about the action being really high. Soloing on acoustic is a freaking bitch. And yeah. he made it work and he did it like a pro. Even back then when, like he said, what, what we were talking about before, when he wasn't really into the acoustic thing, he figured out a way to do it. He figured out a way to make it sound really good. Just so impressive. Like, it's just, you have to be technically perfect. When you play a solo electric guitar, you don't have to be technically perfect. Like, because right. the noise and everything and the, the feedback, and you can you can be sloppy and you can it'll still sound really good. But on an acoustic guitar, you cannot do that. You've got to be perfect. And he is on this. We'll get back to that point in a little while. All right. It's every two songs here where we're going to get to kind of a commercial break where they just kind of twiddle their thumbs a little bit and Mike plays a little bit of Angie and the interlude between the songs. Ed sort of talks to the crowd too during this and what he says is pretty funny. He says, I believe this applause was legitimate if I didn't see them practicing it beforehand. I don't trust you at all. Ed can't be fooled by any of that shit. And I think most other bands that are more TV friendly, again, this is like really the first time that they were on TV, especially like playing to a live crowd on TV. I think he just kind of saw through a lot of that bullshit technical stuff and he wanted to call it out for it because he, why tell people to applaud? They can they can do what they want kind of deal. You know, it just why make it more special for TV? I think that's what his thought process was for this. Where other bands yeah, and other acts would go out there, yeah, and they would just be like, okay, this is the process, right? You know, it's it's funny too because you can just picture you know 
them backstage or side stage, you know, waiting and some producer being out front, like, all right, guys, when this comes on, let's right. hear it. Let's let's applaud for Pearl Jam. Here we go. We're gonna practice yeah. three. And the light comes on, everybody goes, Woo! For nothing. And so he's just back there going, like, oh, I cannot believe this. I could just see him being like disgusted, like, oh come on, guys. Like right. Yeah, right. yeah, it's pretty funny. In this little speech here, a quick strum of rocking in the free world happens before the crowd is prompted again to clap. And that would take you into a live. interesting so ed was wearing a white Sox cat and the first two songs and he takes the hat off before live and now it feels like we can really see more of the emotion in his face it, it's, for a cubs it, fan that's blasphemy well he was friends with jack mcdowell right he does mention that yeah. so yeah that, that, i think that was for that but he's very animated during this like you can see his facial features you can see the hair kind of hanging over his face and and alive is the first one where it seems like okay he's ready to make that transition to letting it hang out a little bit. Yes, and he's trying to put himself in that frame of mind of being in one of those small clubs in, in Holland or in Germany or in, in the UK. You see him close his eyes a lot, like he's getting into the performance. He's, he's trying to forget that he's on TV, I think. And yeah, it's almost you know, just as intense as the Saturday Night Live one from April would be. You know, We talked about that on our Patreon a couple of months ago. Again, here too another very technical very good solo from mike just fantastic yeah i listened to mike solo and i almost thought for a second like it's so full and the strings come off as so rich sounding i almost thought he was on a 12 string the way that he was playing it so i'm sure he wished he had been i right yeah it would have helped him big time but yeah that's how that's how good he sounded during this and again so difficult to do that and of course they have to play this but again it's really not the kind of song that really transitions perfectly to acoustic but it's one of two songs that's really circulating at the time and probably everybody there was looking forward to hearing it and it really doesn't disappoint they don't tarnish any of the song to match the setting at all dave is going at pretty much full pace here so yeah they're they're really setting the bar pretty high for what unplugs would become afterward 
we mentioned that that quote from Mike, it's like he wanted to bring the power, and like when you play electric, the power comes from the amps, right? It comes from that wall of sound, and here that's gone, but it's still a powerful performance, obviously. But the power is all coming from Ed, and alive too, just like Ocean. You can't watch this and not just be blown away by the sounds that are coming out of his mouth. It's just amazing. greatest vocal performances he's ever done is these eight or nine songs seeing that we're about to transition into what's probably considered the best vocal performance of the night it's up there but is this the best vocal performance of all time for him is this the best vocal performance all time for unplugged those are great questions Mm, i don't know let's get into black up there the best so, of all time, sure. I think it's the best Pearl Jam performance of all time. Could be argued, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Honestly, I think it's for more than what the performance actually is. I think this is the moment where if you're watching the show on May 13th or you're watching some of the recaps and replays, this is the moment that you look at them and you're like, they are stars. Oh, yeah, now the 
so you watch him during this and you see him I, I might mention this every single time we do a show from this era that he does the I'm surrounded by some kids at play like just all aggressive and in full power and I might say that every time he does that in 1992 I'll usually say it's the unplugged version of this because that is exactly where you remember it from. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's perfect. I mean, there's nothing bad to be said about it. And I'm almost at a loss for words. You you almost can't describe it. You just have to just go watch it. I mean, all of you guys should have be familiar with this. If If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it. Oceans Alive, you know, I both mentioned, like, oh, you know, that'll set you down. Like, you'll, you'll take notice, like, this is, again, it's on another level. He's channeling something that's almost, like, magical, and, like, there's something going on inside of him saying this that he's able to get out and put out on that microphone and on his face and just a legendary performance of the song. And, like, a really early We Belong Together, like, they hadn't been doing that a lot. And this made that a thing that right, it became what everybody out. wanted from black Absolutely. from that point on. Absolutely. You know, I didn't know Ricky Lee Jones at that point. I'm thinking just, he's adding lyrics to the song and just, it's not like now we belong together. Like they, they bring it way down and like, it's a crowd sing along thing. But again, like I said, this is all passion. It's all energy. Like I don't see how he was able to continue past this point because there would almost be nothing left. It's just one of the greatest performances of all time. I think this is absolutely the turning point. Again, going back to people watching this in in real time, whenever they are watching this, but I think for a lot of people, this is the turning point where they're watching and they're saying, holy crap, this band just has it. They have everything. They have everything working for them. And the minute that I'm able to get out of this house, I'm going to go and buy their record because I just want to play the song over and over and over again. Radio stations. I think Patrick mentioned it when he was talking about black after this radio stations were getting this request and it wasn't even a single, like that wasn't really a thing that happened at the time, but there were top 100 lists. I think that Brian mentioned that and they were number one for a very long time. And that's because it was the most requested song for a certain period of time from probably when the show happened to all the way through the summer. So that's the impact that black has the story of black, you know, the, the record company kind of famously went to them and was like, you have to put this out as a single. This is bigger than alive. It's bigger than Jeremy. It's bigger than anything. I got to think that that is based off of this performance. Like Sony, Sony seeing this and being like, why was this not the first single? Like, what the hell are we doing? Get them on the phone. Like, and then, you know, Ed famously refused, like, nope, we're not going to turn it into one of those songs. Right. They didn't want to profit off of a story that was kind of close to Ed that for a long time in 1991, he didn't even want to play it because it, didn't really sit well with him. He didn't really want to go back to the situation and it kind of had to evolve over time that he was able to get comfortable. So yeah, Yeah. that's a no brainer, honestly. And that's part of the lore of Pearl Jam is that when everybody wants more, they could have gave you more, but they said no. And they knew when to say no, as Stone would say, the birth of no. So they definitely aired this version just as a music video. Oh, of course. And that's another thing too. I didn't have MTV in my house, but 
after this, they put the performances from it in the rotation. So yeah, you would see individual performances if you were just watching like during the day and in, in, interspersed in the other videos. Absolutely. Here's something from the bootleg that we have that probably not a lot of you know about. What versus song do they tease right here? Yeah. So, you know, again, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, every couple of songs, there's like a little commercial break. So we hear them kind of jamming a little bit and they're still kind of playing like there's a little Dirty Frank slash Freaky Styley, whatever you want to call it, tease for a few seconds. And then there's something that sounds like the beginning of Nobody Does It Better. There's a little bit of producer talk. Jeff is asking for something. And then they kind of start playing something. It's instrumental and it's dissonant. got some lyrics for it he's obviously like working on it and they go off on dissonant for like over a minute yeah that's nuts to me because i didn't even know that like a lot yeah. of the like from what that's, we knew that's not on that's not on no. anything else that you're not going to find that this was unknown until this bootleg came out right and, and we knew that leash we obviously knew leash and then we knew a little bit later the daughter being written on the bus yeah. but it makes perfect sense because obviously the whole versus tour they were just writing vitalogy songs the whole entire time so you have to think during the tour in europe and and even before that where they're playing with the chili peppers and smashing pumpkins and nirvana they are starting to write new material and it goes to show that from the very beginning they were always thinking ahead he even says afterwards he says oh you know that's how we write we just kind of jam if you hear that at the time, you're like, okay, that's that's a nice little ditty, but there's none of that electric solo in the beginning. There's none of that oh, yeah. from Mike. Yeah. So yeah. that would come a little bit later, I suppose, unless they were just holding back a little bit. But it being on acoustic, I can see the world where, yeah, they, they didn't add it at all. In between commercial breaks here, Ed asks the crowd or a producer, he asks if he can't say fuck. And that says, well, if they're going to make it so you can't have abortions, then they won't let you say fuck. I just want to say you should be able to have a fucking abortion. So, you know, they're planting seeds a little bit here because in a couple minutes, that's going to come back. And that's on his mind a lot lately. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. And, and think about the time period when this came out. He had already on live TV shown his support for pro-choice because of the SNL performance and the hanger on his shirt. Well, that was so, recorded after this, but... that Well, that's what I mean. That was the first thing that people saw from SNL. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So people, once they saw this live, they were like, oh, okay, we're putting together a little bit of a story. This is what Ed is passionate about. So, yeah. 
we're getting into Jeremy here. Jeff got his 12-string bass. That's that's impressive because if you're getting this from local music stand or something like that, getting a 12-string bass is probably pretty difficult to find. Oh, yeah. So it's staying true to the song. And in this one, again, like Alive and obviously like Black, Ed's got all the facial expressions going on in this. Just digging into the aggression, digging into the anger of the song when he goes on with sort of the shrieks at the end and stuff like that. He's closing his eyes and he's shaking his head. There's a lot of rocking around. And yeah, his whole entire presence is worth the watch on this. The band is doing their job. And again, like I said, Dave is setting the tone for a lot of this to sound like Pearl Jam's rhythms and not to sound just like an acoustic strip down and this is another one that pretty much fits jeremy's normal pace yes there's the thing with mike too the solo on this is more of a strum to kind of solo. yes just he super fast strumming he doesn't go for the the really fast picking and again that's maybe due to the equipment that they were using and he maybe by this point it was kind of getting more down and he didn't feel like he could pull it off so that's interesting to know now going back and hearing that and being like, oh, okay, maybe that had something to do with that. Actually, you know, before the listening tease, you hear Jeff talking to the producer and like knowing they were going to do Jeremy. He, I think he asked for, like, he goes, hey, can I, can, can I make sure I get some chorus in this? He wants to make sure that that bass sounds like full and rich, yep. that it's going to hit on the performance. Because, you know, mixing for a TV performance, very different than mixing for like a live sound kind of a right. thing. So yeah, they, you know, there there have been some Saturday Night Lives and stuff that have sounded very bad. And especially, you know, some of the TV shows are more known for having good acoustic sound than, than others. But Jeremy here, yeah, and again, it's just Ed's coming out party. You know, I think they went and filmed the video shortly after this, or it was around this time that they were getting ready to, to work on the video. So he had those same facial stuff and the moves you see in the video. He's, that was just him at this time on Jeremy. It's just all intensity and like an acoustic version of Jeremy. You don't think of as being super intense, but it's just Ed, like he's channeling all of that in his performance. I'm gonna go back real quick to what you were saying about the sound in, in the video. What you gotta think is that this was sort of like a 360 set because there were fans that were behind them. They're in a big circle in the middle. So sound-wise, that kind of resonates a lot differently too. Which is very interesting because they're just used to, you know, what's right in front of them and playing to what's right in front of them. And that's what works. And obviously that's kind of what makes a concert a concert. But they had to kind of revolve it around everything. And there weren't a lot of people behind the stage, but there were enough where everybody has to kind of take in that sound. Especially it being there and it being open kind of leads to a different sort of vibe. So, yeah, that's an interesting point. Jeremy, super fast. Like you mentioned, the insane strumming from Mike was very, very good. And uh, another great classic performance that happened at the show, absolutely.
get in between, they gave us a few rules before we started, like no cuss words or anything like that. They didn't say anything about no slamming. If there was a song, that was it. This could be anyway, so I hope you just have fun. So I just want to say, uh, one, two, three, four. What in this world, run into you, didn't leave a message, at least I could learn your voice one last time. Daily minefield, this could be my time by your. Would you hit me? Would you hit me?
dig into this there's lots of angles to go for here just like jeremy just like alive like they're taking the capacity that might be maxed out on how fast you can play on acoustic and they are just exceeding that to just the highest of levels and with porch when you think of porch now and it does have a semi-acoustic aspect to it in the beginning when they're doing what's more the riffy version and you would think even with some of the Ed solo versions that he does, he's turned it into a full-on acoustic song, which it's not as fast. Obviously, he's not going to have the same vocals as he did back then, but this is straight up the porch that you get live, the porch that you get from the record. This is balls to the walls here. Like Everything is sounding like the song should sound. So when it kicks into the jam... Listen to Stone and Mike together. Just the skill involved in that guitar interplay is just mind-blowing. We've talked about it a thousand times. This is the showstopper, right? And even before Ed starts doing his stuff that we're going to get to, it's just those two guitars together. And like I went back and listened to it a couple of times, like rewound it. Just like hearing them together, it meshes so well. And like... I'll go back to like the technical skill required to pull that off on an acoustic guitar and by two people at the same time and to have it be able to to flow like that and build like that is very, very impressive and very, very hard to do. Very high level of difficulty and they pulled it off just unbelievably. All right. Shenanigans time. So you talked about getting into the solo section and obviously this is where ed is going to stand on the stool he falls over and then gets up and does the body surf on this on the stool there so obviously he's not going and jumping off amps on this one but that's as pretty much as close as he would get to the real kind of porch shenanigans and i think that that becomes an iconic moment for so many people watching because even in unplug sets, you see a lot of people that are just kind of sitting there and they're trying to capture a mood. And Ed's like, no, screw all that. I'm going to do what I do. I'm going to start doing my antics and, and make a moment of it. And honestly, that wasn't even really the moment. It was a part of the moment, but it's just, you know, there, there are some memes out there and Twitter accounts out there that will give you snapshots and I'll say, the moment before the moment, like the moment before everything went a certain way. 
And that's what this is. This is the moment before the moment. Because then he gets back up on the stool and he takes a marker and he writes one of the most iconic phrases in Pearl Jam history on his left arm. In all caps, P-R-O-C-H-O-I-C-E. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Oh, it's it's the way he's just digging into his arm on those exclamation points that I always go back to. Like and the, he is the dots, both. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this is something at the time, I don't think a lot of people mainstream were really like digging into cause like ventures like this, that like they weren't taking stands as much. You have to think the generation right before this, that, the, you know, grunge is sort of taking over for is the metal hair bands and the metal hair bands didn't care about any of this shit. They were just like, okay, girls and, and, and drinking and, and, and drugs and driving fast cars. They didn't yeah, care about too. any causes. Yeah. Guns and roses and all that stuff. Like, that was MTV up until 1991. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yep. And then go back to Kurt Cobain and, and that's where the game really changes. But Pearl yeah. Jam didn't have to really follow Nirvana to be who they were. Like this is what they were going to be. And it just all kind of meshed really well at that time in history. But yeah, this is, yeah. this is iconic. This is really iconic. And he's standing up and he's kind of doing these like, you know, moving around on the stool without actually, he was just like hopping on the stool sort of deal. So he's again, kind of tempting a little bit of danger, even though it's a little bit tame and mild, but then he transitions into some lyrics here before the last chorus kicks in about everybody having the right to have a choice. He's, Make a change for a part is the part that I, that always sticks with me. Right. To this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think what, is great about this and and like i mentioned snl is really like the first moment where there's a hint of it but here's where you kind of see like okay he's really not fucking around it's not a joke and that from this point forward ed and pearl jam will be seen as a band that cares about these things that are going to speak up when it comes to especially when it comes to abortions and pro-choice where in 1994 they did a whole show that was a pro-choice benefit in pensacola florida it would just go on forward they would they would start acting for more causes even in today of course they have so many causes from you know fighting homelessness in seattle to fighting eb and getting a cure for eb the vitality foundation like all that sure yeah like that is part of pearl jam's personality and i think that while it doesn't really start here i think there's awareness that starts here well, I think, too, it, it just showed that they had integrity. That's one of the things that I latched on to. Because, you know, when you're a young teenager, you're looking for some sort of, like, authenticity and, like, someone who actually stands up for what they believe in. You know, and that's the stuff. Because especially, like, in the early 90s, that was, like, coming off of the 80s, just being bombarded with all this, like, commercialism and all that stuff. And, like, when you get to the 90s, I think a lot of that stuff had been kind of bubbling up from the underground and in the 90s you had the generation x and all that where it finally like a bunch of young people finally got together and was like enough we're gonna talk about the things that we care about and that kind of lasted for a little while and from like you know 91 through you know 96 or 97 when it kind of tilted back the other direction but for a moment in time like the the clinton era was a big part of this too and like pearl jam and clinton had cross paths a couple of times in 94 and just to hear 
and to see someone who's making a stand on something like this, you're just drawn to it. Like, oh, okay, here's someone who's actually talking about and standing up for what they believe in and something that's going against what, you know, for a lot of us, you know, me growing up in Georgia, what a lot of us have heard our entire lives. So, yeah, it was just... I remember watching this for the first time and not being able to blink. Just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Well said. Yeah, you were a part of that. That's a, a unique perspective. And while I was kind of growing up, it was it was sort of different. Like, yeah. you know, you talk about those things and it's not considered cool. It's not considered to be a part of music. And I don't think I ever really thought much about causes until I went to college. But it just wasn't one of those things that music was known for. It was just kind of known for like, again, reverting back to what hair metal was was like in the eighties. Like you had, you know, live aid and farm aid and we are the world and all that. Sure. Of course. But this is is different than that. This is, this is a little more personal. Right. And a lot of those eighties acts were kind of like the elder statement acts, like, like sting and stuff like that, even though, you know, sting is popular, but I don't feel like sting is the voice of 18 to 25 year olds he's the voice even of... like 13 to 16 year olds like oh yes. yeah right to me like to me in 1992 stings lame fuck sting i don't give of a course. shit yeah. yeah so i think we got to get to the end of the song here because again like the ending is just huge coming off of that sort of improv lyrical part where he's talking about the right to have a choice ed just standing up fully channeling everything he can to get into the moment Again, just a freaking rail train right here, just going full speed and is no different than how they would play it on electric, except for maybe a little flourishes here and there. But yeah, this is this is a freaking phenomenal ending. And at the end, yep, it looks like they're going to pack up because Ed drops the mic and kind of fake smashes a guitar real quick. But Jeff actually tosses his bass off camera into the crowd or into a crew member. And he must be saying like, fuck this instrument. If we're done, I never (laughs) want to touch this thing again. Exactly. Exactly. Is it Dave that puts the little starting lineup basketball figure on the little drum stool? I think it is Dave. Yeah. I think it is Dave. And I, it was hard to tell. It looked like it was a red Jersey. You couldn't really see the back, but I want to say it was probably Hakeem Olajuwon or Charles Barkley. That's what I thought too. It was Olajuwon. Yeah. Yeah. Olajuwon's my first guess, but Barkley, I think was on the Sixers at the time. So it could have been him too. Yeah. Yeah. So iconic, you guys just iconic and a massive performance from this. He he comes out and does the Polaroid. I think he comes out and says all my Polaroids in the shop. So I got to use this instead. And he comes out and takes the picture. It feels like it's the end here, but we are coming back. We're coming back to do more. And what's crazy is, and kind of what I've always saw this performance as being, is that compared to what would happen later, the later unplugs that get really popular, Nirvana, Alice in Chains are the two that immediately come to mind. They both played, you know, 14, 15 songs. They played a big set. And... While Pearl Jam really couldn't do that because they didn't have, like, they could have added Garden or something like that to this. They couldn't add oh, that, That's funny because, yeah, someone Garden was the Garden one. a little later, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right, right, right. And Garden was the one that was in full fo- focus mm-hmm. at the Zurich they're not show. Gonna, they're not going to do Leash here. No, but they could have done Release easily. Maybe, yeah. 
So they could have fit in more, but, you know, I, I think they were just filming a lot that night, like late at night. So they had a lot to do. But we're coming back here and, and we're doing even flow. And it feels like, again, Mike said in the beginning that he didn't really love how it sounded. And it feels like even flow is probably the performance from all of this that happened that gets talked about the least because it's kind of at the end and it was kind of at, it was at the beginning of the TV performance, but I think everything else just supersedes this a little bit. And you know, the power that you usually get from an even flow solo, it doesn't quite transition very well acoustically it, it's like a little bluesy but i think mike was really when he talked about having the action and the strings being a little high i think it was really tough for him to pull off this solo yeah his quote is some songs turned out good acoustically and some just didn't quite happen i didn't think even flow was any good and i agree like this is my least favorite here by far it's, we've kind of raved and gushed about a lot of these performances and i will not do that about this this to me, this sounds like the Almond Brothers or something like Pass. Like I, I don't, I don't like this very much. It yeah, it's, really it's definitely my least favorite too, and a really tough song to translate. But also, it's their most or second most popular at the time next yeah. to the live. Yeah. They, you have to do it. You yeah. just do, and you give it your best shot. But also, it seemed like they were trying to get away with not doing it because it felt like that porch was the last one but i wonder if the tv producers knew that porch was going to be the last one on tv because there's a whole ending to it and they say goodbye yeah. and everything like this so yeah. i wonder if they told them like act as this is the last song and then oh, you can sure come out did. and do their encore oh know? yeah at 100 yeah we get a don't vote republican line at the end and the crowd loves that all right in this in between section between even flow and rocking in the free world people shouting out songs a lot of chance for Garden. Mike plays a little smoke on the water. And Ed says, he knows what they're going to play. And then he says, draw. Did you hear him? He's like, draw. All he said was that. And you're hmm. thinking, oh, was he going to say drop the leash? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's not the choice. They're going into rocking in the free world. Now, I got I to gotta address something for a sec, because we haven't had the opportunity to address this formally on the podcast yet. This didn't make MTV, nor did it make the vinyl. This was kind of like just kind of stuck on the bootleg and, and people knew about it when they got it later on. We are not going to play anything from Rockin' in the Free World. And from this point forward, obviously with everything that's happened in early 2022 with Neil Young leaving Spotify, we're just going to stay clear of playing any Neil Young related songs now because we're on Spotify. We just don't want to piss anybody off in Neil Young camp, even though the chances that they'd be listening would be extremely, extremely low. You never we're know those algorithms and shit that pick up sure. all things yeah yeah they don't have to listen to no so still if pearl jam does it it'll still pop up as original recording artist neil young so yeah. we're gonna stay away from that for now and, and for shows that are like september 11th 2011 that's just gonna have to be on ice for a while because you can't do that without really talking and hearing the situation so right. it's it's un it's unfortunate but it's something that we have to do and i hope you guys understand that so yeah, we're not playing the song, even though it's probably the song that got heard the least from the bunch here. It's not, again, not on the vinyl, not anywhere. 
but this is great. This is really great. It's fast. It's intense. Ed's got some intense lyrics in there that he's just kind of going off and, and Dave testing the limits, allowing Ed to kind of go crazy. Mike sort of doing these bending solos there. Like this was a really, really good performance and kind of almost out of nowhere. And I think that Neil Young actually did an unplugged before this and did rocking in the free world, not unplugged if I'm I not mistaken. So. Yeah, I believe so. Rocking in the free world is again, like you said, we, we just have to do that. We, we can't take the risk, but as for the performance, the thing that really stuck out to me is Dave doing those, like after the machine gun line, doing those machine gun drums that didn't last too much longer after this. This is a really early performance of the song. And they only started doing it in Germany. That's right. Like the, I think the week before or something, two weeks before. So mm-hmm. this is only the fifth time and to have to have to do it in a setting like this and an acoustic show, I can see them being like, yeah, maybe let, let's let's not let's not make that one be put on the recording. I'm sure they probably don't think this is the best version of it, but that's the thing that stuck out to me is the drums. I mean, it's not like the Rockin' in the Free World that you would get now. It's still a very early kind of primitive version of it. But it's cool to hear, and it's cool yep. to that the song kind of develops. And a lot of Rockin' versions are kind of like what they would do at Pink Pop, where you would kind of get that sort of intense drum opening to it, and then the song would kind of evolve from the first chorus instead. And this isn't quite that. This is a little bit more standard than that, but they were still trying to figure out what kind of versions of this song they wanted to go and play on stage. But yeah, it's another great ending here, and it's a great way to say goodbye. And they hit a home run. They hit a grand slam. It was a blowout. They won the game, that's for sure. So, and not only that, but they gained thousands and thousands and thousands of new fans. Hundreds of thousands. Right. So this one ends. Stone gives McCready a shout out during that. I think that was (laughs) probably because of a backstage conversation where McCready's like, oh, I'm not feeling this. I'm not feeling this. So Stone's probably getting a nod. So everybody leaves the stage, and that's the end of an all-timer. Before we get to, like, ranking and and ratings and stuff like that, let's sort of talk about the aftermath, because we did get into that a little bit. But this show and this performance on TV absolutely propelled them to the superstardom that you know of today. And I think that there are two moments that escalate. There is this, there's just unplugged in general. And then there's the Jeremy music video where it continues to grow. And this is happening right before the Lollapalooza tour. So people must be thinking like, okay, if I want to see Pearl Jam, that's what I got to do. I got, I got to go to a Lollapalooza to go see them. Yeah. From yeah, there like, playing at like noon or 1 PM or something. You had to right, go really early like, on. They were like yeah. second band on the bill. Yeah. Yeah. They were before Soundgarden. And everything else that kind of came before them was like Ice Cube and Ministry and stuff like that. And Chili Peppers, obviously. But it just skyrocketed. MTV and radio stations, they wanted everything of them because they knew that this performance propelled them. Again, sky was the limit at this point. And like we talked about with Black, not trying to make it a single sort of deal. You would see in their history that they were in really good control of where they would end up and where they would end up is exactly where they wanted to. They wanted to pause the sort of TMZ aspect of what people wanted from them. And they wanted to sort of be 
kind of incognito where they didn't want to get noticed on the street or anything like that. And yeah, they would achieve that after a while. But here, it's going to take a long time before they sort of fall out of favor. This is just skyrocketing right now, especially I think it's at this point too. You know, obviously Soundgarden's out and Allison Chains is out, but now you really have this idea of, okay, there is a Seattle sound and all this stuff is happening up there. Now you get from... Uh, like you always love to talk about from the movie Hype, what's coming from Seattle? Just put a Seattle yeah, sticker on yeah, it, and yeah. people wanted it. So It's MTV, too, and like we forget 30 years later how much of a cultural monolith MTV was, even though I didn't have it in my house. Like I was still tuned in to like what was going like you that was where you went and like you just watched videos that was what happened like it affected the radio it affected everything and it's funny like we talked about at the beginning mtv calls them and they go oh yeah we can do that after jeremy and after like the vmas of 93 if mtv calls them they're probably not even picking up the phone you had a very short window of like 92, 93, where they were playing ball with MTV. And like, you know, there's the clip of Ed on Headbangers Ball where he wrote like Fugazi on his arm and he's sitting there with Stone. And like a lot of that stuff is in the in the PJ20 movie early on. But then after 93, that relationship just shuts down and there's nothing. Like when Do the Evolution video came out, it was like MTV probably played it a few times and then it was gone. They, they played it a lot. I will say that they did play it a lot. And it was okay. one of, on Total Request Live, it yeah, was yeah. one of the songs that were like them and Korn that weren't boy bands. All right, let's get into our moments from this. And they're going to be pretty obvious, I think. So we can make them a little quick. We really talked at length about a lot of these. So let's just hear it. Well, I think for me, the, the number one moment is it starts at that first note of Oceans and it really ends at the end of Porch. I think that is really my number one moment from the show. So you're, you're saying all 45, 50 minutes of this. <laughs> Excluding Even Flow and, and Rock on the Free World. I think those, those can be left on the cutting room floor. But that main part of it, the meat of it is very, very good. No, I mean, it's obviously it's Black and Porch. And then I, I think that Dissonant Tease deserves another mention that that was really cool to hear and is something you don't think of being at this show but just another little tease of something that was pretty cool yeah i'm not gonna stack up porch and black against each other i think that's just absolutely unfair if that porch was at another show or that black was at another show then yeah like put them in the number one but it's really not fair to put one over the other gun to my head i'd probably say black because it's just from porch you kind of get that's the antic song that he's going to come out of nowhere and, and do this stuff. But black is at the time, like even a little bit unassuming and it just becomes that song that people are begging for after this. And they're just saying, eh, we're cool with it. You want to hear, it? we'll play it at our shows. And I think that that's probably the one that I take out of this the most, but my other moment, I'll, I'll say what would be my number three is state of love and trust. And that's because it was really, really good to hear that stripped down. And again, we'll never talk about that again, unless we do a revision of this show for whatever reason. So rating wise, we do not have to linger on this. This is going into all fam. Absolutely. 10 out of 10. That, yep. Going not, into all no, fame. Not it's, even a second of hesitation. Yeah. It's Babe Ruth. It's Mickey Mantle. It's Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, whatever, whoever you want to pick. 
It's first ballot, 100%. The Michael Jordan of Pro Jam shows. 100%. It's the one that made it all happen. It's the one that made it all click. It's the one that made it so Pearl Jam shows were a must-see thing. That's how we end that one. We didn't get the chance to talk about it before because, obviously, there was no real encore in this, so we don't have to pause for station identification. If the stations want to identify themselves, then they can do whatever the fuck they want, but we talked about the station a lot during this, so we're just going to talk about just what's happening over on Patreon right now. And, you know, we're, we're still going to get some more content out there. I think there'll be a new late night series episode in the coming future. And we have two evolution episodes on the docket for the future as well. But anything that you guys want to hear from 1991, 1992 for us to work on, shout it out. And maybe those will be a project for the next coming month or so. But yeah. I, I'll say again, live on four legs.com. We're starting to really put a lot of effort and a lot of work into putting the pieces out right now. And again, we sort of got teased this past week and, and look at this point, maybe there has been an announcement and yes, there will be an episode when there is an announcement. Maybe they did it on Monday. Maybe not. I don't know. We're recording this ahead of time, but live on four legs.com is going to be the place to be when tour talk really starts to heat up so again the vault article go go and read that and we actually added a brand new set list and note to the serious collectors article so if you want to check that out it's from the 1993 one of the shows that they opened up for you too and there's a really fun kind of note that addresses the whole sort of fiasco with, with Pearl Jam opening up for them. So definitely check those out. If you want to subscribe to Patreon, patreon.com slash live and four legs, or just go to live and four legs.com. There's a button pretty much on every page that says become a patron. Click that. You won't have to be redirected to Patreon or anything like that. You can sign up right on our website, a dollar tier, $5 tier, $10 tier. I always recommend doing a dollar a month or doing $10 for the whole entire year, get you started. And then if you wish to donate a little bit more later, if you want to get it requested or something like that, then by all means, please do so. But we thank everybody that's been a patron for a very long time or a very short time. You guys are the engine that keeps this running. And if anybody else that that wants to join on in the future then hey we're happy to have you aboard so this has been a fun trip and and again like we wouldn't be making episodes like this and putting a lot of hard work and research into it if it wasn't for all the support and all the backing that we've had from people so we're happy to do it like this was an absolute classic there was no way when i looked at the the schedule of where the wednesdays lie i, I looked at the 16th and like we have to do it. I, I knew I wanted to do some sort of 30th anniversary thing, but it all culminated here. So yeah, I really, really liked these last couple of weeks. We really dug in to some Pearl Jam stories that were really, really worth telling. So thanks everybody. If you tuned into all of them, then that's just fantastic by you. And hopefully you got to learn a lot. Hopefully you got to enjoy a lot. So Next week, we are going back to some Patreon requests here. We're actually going to do a request from our patron and Live and Fort Lake staff writer, Nick Smith. And his choice of episode is East Lansing, Michigan, 1998. So we'll be talking about that. I think we did Noblesville about a month or two ago. And this is the show right after Noblesville. Oh, so Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, we can kind of compare the two of them a little bit. Yeah. So... All right. You want to tune into that? 
Check it out next week. If you want to rate the show, if you want to follow us on social media or on all the social medias, follow us on Facebook. Pearl Jam Podcast Community Group is the best way to do it. On Twitter, we're just live on Four Looks Pod. And if you don't subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple, make sure you do so. It'll help out the show, help out our visibility. And then if you wish to rate us, hopefully five stars, but whatever you choose to rate us, leave us a comment as well. Then more people will get to see it and hopefully be inspired by your words to listen a little more so thank you everybody for tuning into this one this was a really just special one to do we don't have a lot of real special ones left so yeah it's always just an honor to cover these so let's just get into spiel this may be the end we're here but not for much longer and although we may be parting ways i miss you already miss you always like I said, hell of a show. Now we're kind of back to our normal routine, and next week we're coming back with East Lansing. So hopefully we will see you there. It didn't feel like a TV show. Thanks very much. It didn't feel like a TV show at all, actually. Oh, by the way, this was MTV and we were unplugged. Um, And they're really gonna unplug us now, so we'll see you later.